Uh, we are in 2 Timothy chapter 1, if you have a Bible with you, 2 Timothy 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under one of the chairs around you. <clears throat> That's where we're going to be. If you're taking notes, the title this morning is How to Succeed as a Christian. How to Succeed as a Christian. Many of you are familiar with the recent, uh, the recent data and statistics on the religious landscape here in the United States. Particularly, you're aware of the decline in the percentage of people who identify themselves as Christian. Four years ago, a Pew Research or Pew Research put out the results of a study they did. This was in 2019, and it found that only 65% of adults in the United States identify as Christian. 65%, that is a drop of 12% over one decade. It was 92% in the 70s, which is wild to think that it's gone from 92% to now 65%, and they think it will get down to 50% based on those trends by, I think, 2050 or somewhere around there. Meanwhile, the percentage of those who identify as non-religious is up from 17 to 26% over that same time period. And when you focus geographically on the Pacific Northwest, those numbers get even more staggering. Keep in mind, though, the numbers I just gave to you are done before 2020. So things have changed even in the last few years. Just one example of how the COVID season has impacted these trends. In April of last year, the Barna Group put out a study that focused primarily on pastors with a focus on senior pastors. And what they found was alarming, but in all honesty, shouldn't be that surprising. What they found was that one year ago, 42% of senior pastors surveyed considered quitting in the last year. That's up 13% in just one year when it was 29% in January of 2021. And I'm assuming it was probably even less than that prior to COVID. But because of the last few years, those percentages have increased. All that data that I just gave to you is just simply to tell you what we all already know. Being a Christian is really hard. Being in ministry and doing ministry in this broken world and in our flesh is really difficult. And sometimes, if we're all being honest with ourselves, we have experienced situations and circumstances that make us wonder, is it even worth it? And if maybe we haven't wondered that specifically, we've thought, is it even possible to do it in this world that we're living in and in this flesh? And I bring this all up because it seems that the letter of 2 Timothy, which we're starting today, was written with those two questions in mind, to answer those two questions. So if those questions relate to you in any way, be encouraged because the text we're going to look at today and even this book is going to look at how we can arrive at some answers to those questions. Last week, just by way of reminder, we finished the first letter that Paul the Apostle wrote to his protege in the ministry, this young man named Timothy, his son in the faith. He was the pastor of the church in the ancient city of Ephesus. 
In that letter, what we saw was that Timothy was placed there by Paul, elected by the elders there, in order to get the church healthy. It was unhealthy. There were people there that were teaching wrong things, and they were leading some astray. So Timothy's job, his difficult job, was to confront the false teaching and those who were teaching it. No one likes conflict, Timothy especially, and yet this is what he had to do. And while he was doing that, he had to teach correct doctrine and model that and be an example to the believers there in this church. It was going to be a tough road ahead. But Timothy's a young man, and like most young men, he's all excited about ministry and thinking, this is going to be great. I'll just do a few things, and the church will love me. It'll be awesome. And then Paul writes 2 Timothy. (laughs) A few years later, Paul, knowing the situation that Timothy was going through, had to write a second letter because those circumstances for both Paul and Timothy had actually gone from bad to worse. For example, Paul, while he's writing this letter, was sitting in a prison cell in Rome. Prior to this, in his first letter, he was able to travel around and encourage churches. Now he's in a a prison in Rome awaiting execution. The church in Ephesus was still unhealthy with people constantly pushing back against Timothy and his ministry there and polluting the gospel with various false teachings. Several of Paul's friends and Timothy's friends, ministry partners, have already quit ministry. We're going to see two of them today. And because of all that, Timothy was burnt out. And it appears like maybe he's on the verge of writing that resignation letter to the elders saying, I don't want to do this anymore. Things were not looking good for them, for Paul, or for Timothy. And it's upon this occasion, this situation, that Paul, a prisoner in Rome, writes to encourage Timothy to continue in the faith and the ministry that he was called to. The great concern for Paul in this entire letter was not for himself. It was not to try and get out of his situation and from being martyred for the faith. Instead, he was concerned that once he was gone, that the gospel would continue to go out in power. And Timothy was the key man in making sure that that would happen. So knowing that Timothy was on the verge of burnout was freaking him out. And so he writes this letter to encourage him. In chapter one, Paul's Timothy essentially to stay in the game. We'll read it here in a second. And he gives him advice on how to do it. And the advice he gives to him in his situation is essentially the same advice that I think that he would give to us. And if I could boil it down to one sentence, it would be this. The only way to succeed as a Christian is with the support of life-giving relationships. The only way to succeed as a Christian is with the support of life-giving relationships. That's what I want to talk to you about today from this chapter. So let's read it together. We're going to read the whole chapter. As we read, I want you to pay attention, be looking for the kinds of relationships that Paul is referring to throughout this chapter that are to help him stay in the game. Let's read it starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, 
by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt or dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagalus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. We'll end there. We'll pick up next week. But it's hard to imagine, honestly, what Paul was going through in this moment. Everything that he had suffered up to this point, all it did was land him in a prison cell in Rome awaiting execution without any hope of escape. And yet his great concern, as I said a moment ago, was not for himself. He was concerned for Timothy his son in the faith, and his concern was for the continuation of the gospel after he was gone. These were Paul's great concerns. It wasn't for his own life. It wasn't for his own comforts. It wasn't for his freedoms. His concern was that the gospel would go out with the power to save lives, which leaves us with a question, is that our great concern in life? I'll just leave you to answer that question on your own. But what Paul does in this opening chapter is he reveals to Timothy his secret for how he has endured through all the trials, all the tribulations that he has gone through in hopes of helping Timothy to endure his own 
trials. And here's his answer. I already gave it to you. The only way you're going to succeed as a Christian is with the support of life-giving relationships. And in the chapter we just read, he, he gives at least four essential relationships that God has used to bring him, that is Paul, through every difficulty he has faced. And it's those same kinds of relationships that Timothy is going to need if he is going to succeed as a Christian. And it's the same kinds of relationships that you are going to need and that I'm going to need if we are going to survive and thrive in our Christian faith. We'll start with the first one. It's in that first chapter there. You need family. Or we'll put it this way, those who told you the way. Look again at verses 4 and 5. Paul, as he's writing this letter, is remembering Tim, the last time him and Timothy were together. Timothy was obviously saddened, not sure if he would ever see Paul again, and he was filled with tears. And it's upon remembering that moment, Paul reminds Timothy of something that he was reminded of, saying, Timothy, I remember, as I think about your faith, I'm remembered of the people who told you the way, these two women in your life, those faith-filled pioneer women who taught him God's word. Evidently, Timothy was a third-generation Christian. His grandmother became the first and his mother after that. And because of them, his entire childhood was shaped by their loving discipleship in his life. Now, we know that his mother was a Jew. She converted to Christianity. His father was a Greek. And, and so he kind of grew up in this mixed home, at least faith-wise. And it was because of that mixed pedigree that Timothy experienced all kinds of opposition in this church in Ephesus because there were some people in there who loved to revel over genealogies and family bloodlines, and they would remind Timothy of his mixed breed. But here, Timothy's saying, dude, don't pay attention to those guys. Yeah, they may have the right bloodline, but Timothy, you have the right faith. Those guys, they're leaning on something that in the end doesn't really matter. You have the genuine thing, Timothy. You have a faith that was in your mother and in your grandmother, and I'm sure is in you. And that ultimately is what matters, not all these other things that people like to lean on. But what he also does, I think with this reference, is he reminds Timothy of something really important. That even when everyone else is against you in your Christian walk, just know that your mother still loves you. <laughs> your grandmother still loves you. Even when everybody, even when you feel like the whole world hates you, somebody out there probably loves you. Now, I understand that some of you, um, maybe you don't have that loving family experience that's marked by a faith that's generations passed down. You don't have something like that. I get that totally. In fact, I know that many people, their family is a source of pain and not love. Maybe you're the first Christian in your family. You're, you're like the grandmother here. You're the pioneer for your family and for your children. And, and if that's you, the, the parenthetical of this point is still matters. You need to remember those who told you the way, your spiritual family, 
those who loved you enough to tell you about Jesus and the way of salvation. For many people, that's just the church. And if your family rejects you, and many experience that in, in their day and age, people still experience it today. Abandonment from family, but then your, your church family becomes that for you. Those who tell you the way to salvation, and, and in many ways, that's a wonderful thing. But for the most part, what, what he's talking about here is that family should be a source of encouragement and inspiration. My mom is here this morning, <clears throat> and I'm thankful <clears throat> to have had a mom who prayed for me and got a bunch of prayer warrior women to pray for me. Um, and just this is just a point. You can take this, but know that behind every conversion is a bunch of women praying for you. That's just how God works. But it's these relationships that Paul reminds Timothy of. Not his ancestry of pedigree, but his ancestry of faith. Those who went before him and told him the way of salvation and showed him the way of salvation. Parents, grandparents, don't ever forget the influence you have on your children's lives, your grandchildren's lives. It's the family that is the foundation of all these loving relationships, discipling relationships. God has placed you there to tell the next generation and show the next generation what it looks like to follow Jesus. This was true for Timothy. It was true for Paul. It's true for you. It's upon this family reference that Paul charges Timothy. Hey, Timothy, you're in light of your mother's faith, your grandmother's faith, and I'm sure it's in you, you need to fan into flame the gift of God that is given to you. We know this gift from the last book is the gift of ministry and preaching and pastoral ministry. And, and evidently, this passion that he once had in ministry was sort of like that campfire that you have that's like on the verge of going out and it's just barely embers there. That's where Timothy's passion for ministry was, on the verge of going out. But Paul tells Timothy, you need to get a fan out. You need to get some kindling in there and you need to start getting that heat going once again. He reminds him in verse seven of the gospel truth that God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. In other words, Timothy, don't let ministry burn you out. Don't let the hypocrites in your church make you feel like giving up. Instead, remember, remember what God has given to you. Remember the love and the sacrifices that your family or people made for you that helped you to be where you are today. You need that family of faith if you're going to succeed as a Christian. Secondly, this next group is also essential. You need mentors, those who will show you the way. Those who told you the way is the first group. Now you have those who show you the way. We know from the context that Paul was a mentor to Timothy. In fact, we know that Paul led Timothy to faith. He built on the foundation of his mother and his grandmother. We also know that Timothy followed Paul on several of his missionary journeys. He was with him when he wrote several of his letters. Paul even put Timothy's name in many of them. All that to say is that Paul was a mentor to Timothy. And Paul showed Timothy the way of faith and the way of ministry. 
And in this moment, Paul continues that ministry to Timothy, that mentoring ministry by showing him how to endure and suffer well for the gospel. He had told him how to preach, how to lead, how to engage in conflict. He had showed him all of these things, but there was one more thing he needed to learn. How do you endure through suffering? And Paul was showing Timothy that in this letter. We see that throughout this major, uh, the second major paragraph, that Paul is using himself to Timothy as an example of this mentoring relationship. He says it almost explicitly in verse 13. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Timothy, do as I say and do as I do. Follow what I am doing. That's what a mentor does. And he points out a couple things to him that I think are interesting. The first thing he tells him is, Timothy, remember that God saved us and called us both into a holy calling. Now, I love this because Paul's like an apostle, and yet Paul says to Timothy, hey, we both have the same calling, that God saved us and he called us to something special. In other words, yes, being a Christian can be hard. Serving in ministry can be difficult at times. But the fact remains, it's better to be saved and suffer than to be unsaved and still suffer. It's better to be given a holy calling, a purpose in your life given to you from God that causes some temporal struggle than to go aimlessly about in life, figuring this out on your own, and in the end suffer destruction. Being a Christian in this broken world is hard, but imagine not being a Christian in this broken world right now. Imagine not having the hope that the things that you go through in this life actually have some eternal significance. Imagine going through this life not having the assurance that there is a future life that is to come. This is something that Paul reminds Timothy of, something that he's focusing on. Secondly, notice he tells him, hey, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel or of me because I'm not ashamed. I love that. He's confident. He's convinced in the Lord who himself, Jesus, was not ashamed when he gave his life on the cross in order to save him from his sin and give him everlasting life through faith. He's like, why should I be ashamed of someone who wasn't ashamed of me? You know, we all need mentors like this, people who not only show us the way with their words, but they show us the way with their actions, the way that they live their lives through the good times and the bad. People who show us how to persevere when they have every single reason to give up. Timothy was in a bad situation, but it wasn't as bad as Paul's. And if Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel in his situation, then Paul is basically saying, Timothy, why should you be ashamed of your situation? If I'm not ashamed, I think you, I think you can do it, Timothy. Friends, I'm convinced that one of the biggest reasons why the church in America is declining as we were looking at those statistics earlier is because previous generations, and, and this isn't blame, but it is taking responsibility. Previous generations forgot it's their job to mentor the next generation through faithful witness and faithful suffering. Me personally, I'd rather have a thousand faithful Christians who mentor five people in their entire life than one Billy Graham for 50 years. 
I think more work can be done with a thousand Christians who mentor five people in their entire life than one Billy Graham. Not that we have to have either or, but if I had to, I'd take that. On that note, I'm thankful that over the years, the Lord has brought people in my life to invest in me in this way, people who taught me how to lead, how to pray, how to evangelize, how to read my Bible. And I'm sure that many of you can think of people who have inspired you in your walk. Um, they don't even have to be older than you. Maybe it was a, a friend. Maybe it was a coworker. Maybe it's not even a person that you know personally. Maybe you read a biography or you have an author that has inspired you. But regardless, we need mentors, personal relationships with people who show us the way if we're going to succeed as Christians and in the ministry that God has given to us while we live in this broken world. But there's more, thankfully, because after Paul mentions family and mentors, those who tell you the way, those who show you the way, he reminds him of another. You need friendships, those who help you on the way, those who help you on the way. Look at the last chapter there, uh, or um, sorry, paragraph, verses 15 to 18. In this last section, Paul just kind of jumps over. He's reminded of a relationship of a dear friend in Christ, a man named Onesiphorus. And evidently, while Paul was in prison, this man went looking for Paul. While everyone else was like, dude, I don't want to end up where Paul's at. And abandoned him. This friend went looking for him and was like, I got to find out where this guy is. I got to encourage him. I got to find out if he needs something. And this wasn't like the prison systems today where you've got, uh, you can just go to the directory and find out where these people were. He had to hunt and find him deep, deep, deep in the cells. And right when Paul was beginning to think, no one cared about him. Everybody left me. I'm here all by myself. Here comes this dear friend, someone who was not only there in that moment, but someone who was there in prior moments. He says he was not ashamed even in the past, and he often took care of his needs in the past. This was a great, great friend that Paul had. And let me just state the obvious. These kinds of friends are incredibly rare. People who are there for you in your darkest moments, this was the kind of friend that Paul had in Onesiphorus. We should strive to be friends like this, people who are shaped by the love that we find in the gospel. And you know what else? This guy evidently helped Timothy too, because Paul reminds him there at the end about all of the service that he rendered at Ephesus, which is where Paul, uh, Timothy was pastoring. This guy was a gospel-motivated friend, and we need these kinds of friends and relationships if we are going to survive and thrive as believers. And these friends are especially valuable and noteworthy in those moments when those who you thought were your friends betray and abandon you. Notice what Paul says right before this. Right before he mentions this guy, this great friend of theirs, he mentions two punks. <laughs> Phagalus and Hermogenes. Notice he mentions them by name. By name, he calls these guys out. These dudes betrayed me. They abandoned me. They left me in my darkest moments. That's a terrible way to go through eternity 
in the Word of God, remembering this is the kind of friend I was. Now, we're not told why they did this. We can understand from the context that at least we're led to believe they did this because they didn't want to end up in the same situation that Paul was in. Like when all of the disciples left Jesus, they're like, man, I don't want to be arrested and crucified like him. And so they left him. They abandoned him. Assumingly, that's what happened here. Nothing is more painful than when someone you thought was your friend and partner in ministry betrays you. Think about all of the things that Paul went through. Shipwreck. Whips in his back. I mean, all of the things that he went through, I, I can assure you the most painful thing that he went through was abandonment like that. Which makes friends like Onesiphorus even more incredible. When everyone else abandoned him, there was this guy sticking right by his side. And we need friends like that. Speaking personally, I'm thankful to have friendships like this. And I strive to be that kind of friend. In fact, I remember as I was writing this sermon, I remember a very specific time when I was feeling really discouraged. And in the providence of God, I had scheduled a guy's weekend away with two of my oldest Christian friends. And we scheduled this retreat together February of 2020. So we had no idea what was going to hit three weeks later. But we got together and and we laughed together. We encouraged each other. We prayed together. Mostly we were just together and hanging out. And it meant a lot to me at that time. And I know God used it to help us as we were going into the next season of life. But, but even if you don't have like deep friendships like that, these life-giving relationships, just know you can still be a life-giving, supportive person to others. All you need to do is just drop the one line to somebody. I, I, I was in the foyer after first service and, and this gentleman came up and he just said like two sentences to me. And it just really encouraged me. And you can do that same thing to those around you. As you get to know people, you see, hey, I I see this thing. You see God's been doing this in your life. And I just want to encourage you. I see that thing. And I think you should keep going in that direction and keep pursuing that. Just that one word can really encourage someone in their faith. We can be these kinds of people. In fact, that's what the purpose of the church is to be in these life-giving relationships and, and community. If anyone thinks they can be a Christian without the relationships that God provides us in the church, then they have been deceived by Satan himself or himself. And, and a, a Christian without a church is like a ship without a sail in the middle of the ocean. We need family, we need mentors, we need friendships, but the most important relationship of all the one that's going to get us through the most difficult of circumstances, because here's the, here's the fact of the matter, you may experience something in your life, maybe you already have, where not a single person on planet earth can empathize with you, sympathize for you, be there for you. There's just nothing. But there's one person who can, and his name is Jesus. You need Jesus the one who made a way. This is the fourth relationship that Paul highlights, and I want to highlight to you. Paul was greatly encouraged by his ancestors in the faith, by these friendships, by the mentoring relationship he had with Timothy. 
But what truly made him unashamed of the gospel while he's sitting there in a prison cell, what enabled him to succeed in faith and ministry was knowing that Jesus was with him and that he already made a way for him. Look at verse 10. When he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Don't forget Paul's testimony. He's going on the road to Damascus and he sees the glorious face of the resurrected Jesus, the one who just a few days earlier was hanging crucified on a cross and now he sees his glorious face and all of a sudden everything becomes very clear. Death doesn't become something to fear, but instead it's just something we got to pass through in order to experience this glorious life that is ahead of us. And Paul's thinking, yeah, I mean, martyrdom is in my future, but you know what else is in my future? Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The same power that was in Jesus that helped him to suffer and die on the cross is the same power that's in you through faith in the gospel. The same power that brought Jesus back to life is the same power available to you that will help you through faith in this life. This is why Paul says he was appointed a preacher and an apostle. This is why he says he suffers as he does, because he wants everyone to know this power is available to them as they go through the circumstances in life. I don't know where all of you are today, but if you haven't put your faith in Christ, then you have made the decision, consciously or unconsciously, to go through all of the struggles in this life in your own power, and not in the power that God is willing to give you through faith in Jesus. And I don't know about you, but the circumstances that we face in life is bigger and stronger than the power that we possess in and of ourselves. If you want to succeed in this broken world, then you need to put your faith in Jesus and receive the power that he promises to give to you through faith in the gospel, which is the story of how Jesus abolished death and gave life and immortality. For the rest of us, though, who have done that, who have committed our life to Christ, even as we look to cultivate these relationships, let us never forget that even when all relationships fail, Jesus never will. He suffered for you, and he still suffers with you, even now. And this is our great hope, even as we were just singing a little bit ago, he will bring you to the end. He will bring you to the finish line, and he'll bring you across the finish line into glory. Why don't we pray together, and then we'll have a time of communion. God, we come before you, and we're just grateful for the relationships, God, that you have given us that help us in our faith, that help us to not be crushed under the weight of this world or give in to the temptations of our flesh, but instead help us along the way. God, I pray that if anyone in this church is lacking in any of those areas, God, I pray that you would fill those needs with friendships and mentors and, and the church as a family. God, I pray that you would bring those valuable relationships in so that we can succeed in the Christian life together. But even when all things fail, 
God, we're thankful that we have Christ. And we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us who helps us on the way. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.